Before we begin, we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past and present. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger, and today I have a very interesting guest, and I'm going to jump right in and tell you a bit about her. So Rosalind Searle is a professor of human resource management and organizational psychology at the Adam Smith Business School at the University of Glasgow. She became inaugural director of the EWOP, the European Association of Work and Organizational Psychology Impact Incubator, in November 2020. So Roz, welcome. Maybe you can begin by telling us a bit about a bit more about who you are and what has brought you to Australia. Thank you. And it's lovely to be here today. So I'm in Australia because I'm on sabbatical. And one of the things that I really wanted to do on sabbatical was to work uh, in this space that we've been doing a number of years of work in around professional misconduct. So I've been doing a series of talks in different places and spaces. Um, some very exciting new developments that we're looking forward to in next year. Um, and so the work that I do is all around translating work psychology science into impact in the sense of into policy impact, explaining it for employers, also helping professionals to understand. So we're trying to make the bridge between science and helping people to understand how science can help them, particularly work psychology science, in their own practice. So for a number of years, I've been working with the main health regulator in the UK, and that's Professional Standards Authority, looking at how to improve trust of the public in health and social care regulation. And so through that, we've been on a journey together, really trying to understand what are the concerns that they have and how can our science help them to understand and become better regulators and also work with employers to help them in that way. Mm. So we've done a number of different studies for them, looking comparatively at trying to understand are there differences between health professionals in how they do their work, but also how their misconduct occurs? And then trying to understand particularly the interface between people, their behaviours and the workplaces that they occupy. And I wonder, you mentioned about trust this is all very interesting. You mentioned about trust of the public in health and healthcare. Um, obviously, there's a link then, it sounds like, between that trust and misconduct. Yeah, so the view that we take is that often people trust their health professional or their social care provider because they're particularly vulnerable. They also don't have as much knowledge as that person. It would take them a lot of time. And also they might not be functioning as completely as they would want to, which is why they're seeing the health professional. And so in those spaces, this is where their vulnerability can often be at its most high, mm. and then they could be taken advantage of. And this is where trust starts to come in, in the sense that it, it changes their expectations of what they thought was going to happen in their, that interaction or those interactions. Mm. And it's about a sense-making process that people might be on, or it might be a a really significant event that they think, wait a minute, that shouldn't have happened mm. in this space. Mm. So the work that we've been doing, particularly in the last two years, has been looking at people who have been uh, witnesses or the targets of these events mm. and looking at how do they make sense of what's happened 
and how do they then interface with regulation and what can regulation do to improve and enhance how effectively it manages that and helps people to report and therefore helps professionals to be better professionals. So we've got trust about a particular procedure with a particular professional that might that professional is working in a context and so people can not trust that context or they can trust that context and maybe they're new to seeing that professional or they're new to that procedure so again we have an expectation that things will go well in that space we might be giving a lot of money uh, which can change how we view and and our expectations of what that's going to be but it's often the case that people don't feel vulnerable until after the bad thing has happened. And then they're kind of trying to make sense of what's happened and trying to think, am I imagining this? Should this, because it can sometimes be a very subtle thing. So what we've been looking at, particularly with our witnesses to harm case is trying to understand who do people talk to in that space? And often they'll talk to somebody before they come to the regulator so that, again, that's the public that we need to be educating around this. Mm. And often what we're finding is that within the health space, we have lots and lots of people from different training backgrounds, from different country backgrounds, from different culture backgrounds. So there's lots of opportunities that misconduct can innocently arise mm. because somebody's expectations from one context and one practice mm. might then fall between the gaps when they're working with somebody from a different context. So all the time that we're interacting with people, we're picking up clues about them, about how trustworthy we think they are. And really, if we think about this, the basis of trust can kind of have two different modes. It can be about people's competence, what we see them doing, the fact that they've got all these letters after their name, the fact that, you know, I'm here in Melbourne, that they came from the University of Melbourne. Mm -hmm. All of those credentials help us feel that that person is more competent. Mm -hmm. But actually, that's a, a weak form of building trust, mm -hmm. because essentially that's based on the past. The analogy I like to give is that's the equivalent of driving, just looking at the rear view mirror. So while it helps us feel less wary because of all these credentials, we don't know. So the second form and basis of trust that's actually, as human beings, much more helpful to us is we watch that interaction and we watch the care and respect that's shown to us in that interaction and with the people around us. And that helps us feel much more comfortable. And particularly within a health and social care space, that's about, will I be treated well? So if we watch somebody disrespect somebody or shout at them or be abusive, then that makes us feel wary about that interaction and makes us feel that we should be careful about ourselves because that could be us mm. in this space. Mm. So actually, that kind of, we call it affect-based trust, is actually much more powerful. And it gives a sense of, it raises a sense of emotions within us that might make us feel scared, or they might make us feel very comfortable and assured by watching the care that that person is showing in that mm. interaction. So are there particular uh, environments or influences that 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 you've seen that lead patients or the public to be harmed or to be in a situation where they're more likely to experience harm uh, by health professionals? 
So what we've done for the first time in the UK, we have um, a staff survey that goes out for our hospitals uh, and our national health service. And what we've been able to do is we've done a comparative study looking at three different professional groups. So we've looked at doctors, we've looked at nurses and midwives, and we've looked at something called allied professionals. And this is a group of about 20 or so different professions from paramedics through to psychology. I think you have the same thing in Australia. And what we've done is we've looked at particularly sexual misconduct and we've looked at what are the workplaces that that occurred in and then we've pulled down the staff surveys for the same time that that happened and we found some really interesting um, examples about both things that are positive that could help insulate and stop that from happening mm. but also some things that we need to be careful and watch out for so critically the things that we need to be aware of are high working hours bullying and harassment both from staff on staff but also patient and service users on staff mm -hmm. so those are factors that seem to increase and from a psychological perspective we understand that those are a going to deplete people's means of regulating their own behavior because they're going to be tired their means of making sure they do the right thing are going to be denuded in that mm -hmm. context but also where you've got a high incidence of incivility, incivility kind of breeds incivility. And if you like, sexual misconduct is an extreme form of that, mm -hmm. but nevertheless is telling you that there's something else that's going on that's likely to mean that that affect-based trust that I talked about is going to be low on the ground. So Roz, in your experience or your research, what is being done to mitigate for this? So the things that we know that help reduce that are where you've got good levels of communication, particularly communication between management and staff. So again, that's saying that people can report things, people can talk about things, they're listened to in that space. But also, and this I think it, from an HR perspective for me is really heartening, where you get high levels of diversity and inclusion training. So again, you're helping people to understand how we should treat people and how we should treat people regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of their experiences in this space. Mm -hmm. So those seem to be things that insulate and help reduce the incidents. But that was the first time that we've done this type of work. Mm -hmm. And so what we've then gone on to look at is what we've called the moral mindsets of sexual perpetrators. And by that mean, I mean, we are trying to look at how do people talk about the bad thing that they've done? so that we can understand what are the ways that they psychologically reframe that behavior so that they excuse it in different ways. Mm -hmm. So in particular, we're finding evidence that people, there's a difference in the different types of professional about how they excuse their behavior in terms of their responsibility. So we're finding that where it's nurses, they're often saying, oh, it, it's people above me that are making me do this. Whereas doctors can't get away in the same way with that. So often they are diffusing it. Oh, this is what the culture is like in this space. Mm. But we're also seeing denial. So people saying this thing didn't happen. And particularly what we've identified is that this is more likely where it's a very extreme form of behavior. And we're seeing ways that people discount the other person. Mm, thank you. We've talked about trust in the context of 
the public and a health professional, and maybe even in the context of a workplace, like trust within between colleagues and how those relationships work. Is there an issue for uh, what you refer to as witnesses or maybe the public in terms of their trust in choosing to come to a regulator and report a concern? And, and what do we know of that? Is there anything you can tell us about, about that element of trust? So I've been working uh, with colleagues in the UK for the National Institute of Health Research. We're doing the first study that's ever looked at this witness to harm question. Mm. And in that, what we've been doing, uh, and my colleagues have been doing an amazing job, is looking at the reporting space. So in particular, they've been looking at what's the website like that people might look at to try and find out how do I report and then more specifically, what's the level of language and education that's required? And what we're seeing that it's at least a high school um, leaving certificate, we would call it A-levels, um, that is required. Now, as a psychologist, we know that people might be coming to that space who are having experience of a trauma. And as a result of that, their capacity to think straight is going to be slightly undermined if not quite a lot undermined so if you've got a very dense very complicated um, website to then navigate it's going to really impact on you and make you think oh this is just too hard mm -hmm. and pull back mm -hmm. so again the work that I've been doing within this study has been looking at the retrospective cases of people to understand what it did you find as a witness? What were the things? Who were the people that you talked to? What was your experience like with the regulator and the regulator team? But also it might be little things that happen. For example, how many times did you have to say about the horrible thing that happened to you? And can I clarify, uh, Roz, when you're using the word witness, you mean that someone, um, they were witness to it, but it, they were witness to something that happened to, often to themselves. Is that correct? So we're working with the regulators um, and with the public to ask people to come forward to share their experiences. It's a very, very hard thing for people to do. And so sometimes our witnesses are people who are part of our, we call them fitness to practice cases. Um, so these are our professional misconduct hearings, you would call them. So we're looking at those people. We're also looking at people who are witnesses to that people who might be family members okay. who are involved in that. Yeah. And so we're starting to get a picture about how do they make sense of their experiences before then? Yeah. And how then do they experience the reporting with the regulators? Yeah. And in particular, there can be very simple things like the length of time between the bad thing happening, yeah. them reporting it, and then getting any resolution yeah. or any hearing. And so what effectively we're asking people to do is to hold open that trauma. And mm. sometimes that can be months yeah. or years. Yeah. And that means that they can't close. So particularly if they've lost a loved one or they've suffered some kind of really major trauma, that's really hard for them. And what we're finding with this whole study is actually is really hard to them ask, then ask them to go back and tell us a bit more about that experience because they're kind of done then yeah. they yeah. want to just get on with their lives yeah. but we need to understand who are the different um points 
that we could then provide information that would help people to navigate this particularly. So in my work package, I'm really interested in, you know, who did you talk to? And we finding that from the determination cases that it's often, you know, you'll talk to your friends, you'll talk to your family before you talk to the regulator. Mm. And that's a kind of sense-making process to check mm. out, you know, did this thing really happen? Am I just imagining it? So you've, you've mentioned a few things that it sounds like are, are, you've already learned are really important for the regulator in trying to make this a safe and respectful experience for a, a witness. Um, and some of those around time, not taking too long and not asking them to potentially repeat the story or the tell that over and over. Are there any other particular ways that, that you have found through your, through your research to restore trust or further um, reduce trauma uh, for those who've been harmed or lost trust in the profession? I think one of the most fundamental things is about trying to understand that harmed person as a fragile person. And so when they feel threatened or they feel scared, that's going to impact on their capacity to remember accurately what has happened. Mm. So it can be little things like helping to prepare them just by taking them to the place where a hearing might be. Mm. What does it look like? Who's going to be in that space? Mm. It can then be little things like after they finished giving their evidence, giving them a cup of tea. Mm. Mm. I know it sounds kind of silly, but just, you know, that whole process can be hugely daunting for people and kind of little human touches of care and respect really make a difference for people in navigating this space. So I know the work that you've been doing in Australia has been really stellar in terms of putting support staff and many of our regulators have support staff there to help people through those experiences. I think what also we can do, which is difficult, and you know, I come from a university background, is we can look at who's coming through the profession right at the start because sometimes there are clues there in how that person as a trainee behaves that raise concerns and yet they're passed through. Mm -hmm. And that can be nurses, that can be allied professionals, that can be doctors about how they conduct themselves, about how they feel the rules apply to them, how much they cut corners, how much you have to remind them about their practice. So all of these things are important clues about maybe regulating the, we would call it input controls mm. into this process. Mm. Now we know particularly around sexual misconduct that this is often a problem where people can't regulate their behavior and sexual misconduct, we know from an Australian study is what's called a recidivistic activity. So often when people start it's very hard to stop. Mm. It's a goal-directed behavior. It's a way of helping you feel more powerful where you maybe don't feel powerful. It's a behavior that can get you a positive outcome from your side, but it harms the other party. This is why the regulator is actually in a really important role. Now we know that the way that that sanction works is a fear-based so people are scared, they want to hide their behavior rather than acknowledge it. But it's really important to understand 
we've got this triangle, I would say, that helps people to do the right thing. And that's both reflective practice. But if you're working in a full on unit, you're working back to back shifts, you've got home issues, your capacity to think about what you're doing is denuded. If you're a senior person, other people might privilege you and might choose to, you know, like we saw with Harvey, Harvey Weinstein, might choose to help you, in inverted commas, by not speaking out, mm. by turning a blind eye when things are happening. And that doesn't help you as an individual do good practice. And then the regulator, and what's the regulator's role? Because you may be encouraging other people in that context to think, oh, if they got away with it, maybe I'll get away with it as well. Or worse, it makes people in that workspace think, well, this isn't a safe place for me, so I might as well leave. So the means of other people pushing back and challenging that mm. starts to decline as well. And so you end up in a more and more, let's use the word rotten, toxic space. But actually the means of getting it out of that are reducing. So there's a lot we can still fix, it sounds like. And and when you think about the future, um, if you were to sort of prioritize what you think the role of the, specifically on the regulator is to ensure this, you know, safe and um, safe healthcare, safe and safe, um, and I suppose safe workplaces within healthcare, because those are really both tied. What, what would you, what would you prioritize? That's such a good question. I think there is, are really important things that we can do very early on in professionals' careers to think about how we do self-reflection and how we think about what are our values and goals and how do our behaviours stack up. But sometimes that can be really hard in this context because often we work in workplaces where there are huge budgetary pressures on people that mean that actually maybe you can't do as complete a job as you would like to do for your service user. So it's about understanding and setting the expectations, but thinking very carefully about where we're not able to do as much as we would want to, you know, let's have those difficult conversations with people. I think there is also questions about how we treat professionals in those spaces. You know, often what we're finding with some professions is that we kind of leave people to burn out. Mm. And that's hugely problematic because it doesn't serve them well when all that money has been spent on the training for them and they want to do a good job. Mm. But also it doesn't serve the communities that they're part of. And often those communities maybe don't have other professionals that they can substitute in. So I'm wondering, you know, particularly thinking about the Australian context, you know, there's lots of people in rural locations that maybe more can be done to give rotations mm -hmm. in different ways to encourage that not to happen or to think about how do we support people in those spaces? Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, if you're the only doctor or you know, nurse practitioner in town, you might be in a small unit where you your friends are people that you work with. So again, mixed boundaries there that can make it very hard to navigate. Mm. You also might have difficulty in saying, actually, I'm having a really hard time 
because who do you say that to mm. and especially if your friends might also be your patients mm. so i think there's some real challenges mm. in lots of places around the world about mm. leaving people to blow up mm. but recognizing that that has horrible consequences and lifelong legacies that it can often cross generations for people that are the targets here. And these are difficult conversations, but I think, especially in this space, the public, they value that honesty. They mm. get it if we're brave enough to mm. say, here are the limitations of what we can do, but the things we can do, we're gonna do to the best of our ability and as well as we can. Mm. So Roz, thanks for being with us today. We really appreciate the time. No, thank you. It's been an honour and I've really experienced some wonderful practice here in Australia. And I've learned a lot, particularly about Indigenous practice mm. and a different way of doing things. Mm. Um, so I'm really excited about the future. Mm. So we continue to learn from new communities and from their perspectives. So to all of you, thank you for listening today to Taking Care. There are more episodes in our back catalog so please take a look or if you have any questions or comments do get in touch with us we're at communications at opera.gov.au and we'll see you next time